Africa, lives in Japan. Uh, he was born in Pangman, Saskatchewan. So some of you may even be related to him. And um, it's uh, wonderful. So he's, um, I first traveled with Lowell, I guess when I was 18, across Saskatchewan. We drove from Vancouver to um, Saskatchewan. I think it was in February. And we used to play a little game, uh, which was a bit weird, I suppose. I used to take off our, our, our shoes and our socks and put our feet out the window and see as we're driving who could endure the longest pain uh, of the minus 20 uh, winds. Um, I think I probably lost every time. Uh, but uh, it's great to welcome you here. Lowell has produced uh, two books he's brought with us. One about boys becoming men, about how to raise our boys to become men, and also never too late. Um, they're available at the information desk. Do uh, take one and uh, purchase one. All the money goes towards uh, Um, his passion, which is digging wells and bringing fresh water to to countries like Cambodia and the Philippines and uh, the relief work that is involved in. So, Lowell, come and share with us. It's great to welcome you to Willow Park, and let's give him a lovely welcome. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Phil, and good morning, everybody. It's a great privilege for me to be here at Willow Park this morning. I'm in Kelowna for three reasons. One is to visit my family. My in-laws live here, and they were here last night. I also know I have at least one cousin here, uh, maybe more, if some of you are from Pangman as well. Actually, it was my dad born in Pangman. I was born in Eston, Saskatchewan, but my cousin Preston is right here in the spit zone this morning, and so I'm visiting family. Uh, Secondly, um, I'm in town because uh, I belong to a community of people who, who try to extend compassion to the neglected poor, and we do it under the name of Hope International Development Agency, and we've been doing that 40 years, and this week we had our 40th anniversary here in Cologne at the Capri in a dinner, and some folks came along uh, from the church here. Thank you, Phil and Michelle, for organizing that, and, and I joined with some of my colleagues here, including Kimberly Stevens, who's a board member of Hope, and here with us this morning as well. And then thirdly, I'm here because Phil has uh, invited me to come, and it's a great privilege to be here at Willow Park for a couple of reasons. Uh, Our friendship goes back a long ways with both of you. Michelle used to babysit our children when she was single. I've known Phil since he was 15, and of course, he was single at 15. Um, And uh, their influence is deep, and it's broad in many parts of the world, and I admire them for what you're doing here is your commitment locally here to serve uh, this very important community. And secondly, I'm pleased to be here because I've heard so many good things about uh, Willow Park and all that you do. And surprisingly, it uh, shouldn't be a surprise, but I unexpectedly enjoyed um, the worship in both last night and this morning. So thank you. What a wonderful thought that we are the children of God. So The subject I've been assigned to speak on is the subject of change. And the challenge I'd like to give you this morning is uh, what what view do you have? And encourage you that perhaps you should move to a further higher hill to broaden your view of what you can do in terms of extending God's kingdom. I'd like to introduce you to Skyly. Skyly has changed my life. She came into my life at a time of change six years ago. My father had just died, and 
for some reason, my father in heaven, I began to long for a dog on earth. I'm not sure what the connection was there, but uh, I discovered Skyly, uh, and uh, she was born in Sendai, up where the earthquake took place. Um, and uh, she joined my life. And she and I have had many adventures. And I'd like to tell you about one of our adventures together. It was two years ago when uh, I kind of took up cycling in Japan. And because I'd been involved in, uh, through the work of Hope International Development Agency in the response to the uh, tsunami, and usually Hope is only involved in the developing world, but this was our community. All of Japan was shaken, literally. And we all had to respond in our board in Japan that we must make a response in our own neighborhood. So uh, in the course of about six days, five different people came and gave gifts to us, totaling $2.5 million, and saying, we want to respond in a hope kind of way, which puts an emphasis on people and locally born solutions to problems. So I'd been up in this region a lot, and I'd heard about tsunami stones, has anybody heard of the term tsunami stones? You've heard of the word tsunami, and you've heard of the word stone. Well, these are tsunami stones, and they're actually tsunami warning stones. They are stones that are erected, and these are all signs showing where all the various stones are. Uh, stones that are erected after previous tsunamis, warning people as to where the tsunami came up to, and advising people not to live past that point. And some of them are hundreds, and one I'll tell you about in a moment is over a thousand years old. So I decided, wouldn't it be great having driven over this area, been in a helicopter over this area many times, to take my bicycle and my dog, and I, discovered, I realized she wouldn't quite have the endurance, so I bought a trailer for her, and we went on a 2,500-kilometer trek up the coast of Japan to explore these tsunami stones. The most famous tsunami stone is a place called Aneyoshi, which uh, was erected in 1896 after a great tsunami that came in, destroyed the town, because that tsunami rose to 127 feet. The tsunami of March 2011th came up and touched this tsunami stone, was equally as high. But this stone essentially says, don't build houses past this point. So they didn't. And no one lost their life in Aniyoshi because of this wisdom that was passed down to the generations. But the one that really fascinated me and is relevant this morning is on an island called Miyatojima. The first time I saw it, it was kind of like this view because we were reconnoitering in a helicopter uh, looking for where people had written SOS in the ground within hours and days after the tsunami and discovered there were 500 people on this island who for a week, because the bridge had been washed out uh, that connects it to the mainland, they were using swimming pool water to drink. So we brought in some water filters, water, and eventually, within days, the bridge was rebuilt, and this island recovered uh, fairly quickly. But there I met a man called Mr. Sato. Mr. Sato is one of the three elders of the community. He told me the story. I went out and researched it later. And he told me the story of a tsunami stone on his island that saved their lives five years ago. Because in 869 AD, there was a great earthquake in Japan. Modern geologists say it was probably a 9.1. And the tsunami came. And the people of his village 
uh, Futatsubashi, it's called, the place of two bridges. It, it's, it was known as since, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, they knew in 869 A.D. that when the earth shakes, go to higher ground. So some of the village immediately went to the nearer lower hill to escape what they believe would be the oncoming tsunami. The rest of the village went to the further higher hill. And from both these vantage points, the people of the village watched the, the waters rise coming in from the Pacific through Ishinomaki Bay up into their harbor and begin to destroy their boats and their homes below. The people on the further higher hill had a wider view. They could see something that the people on the lower, nearer hill could not see. They could see a second wave that had circled the island, come up and was coming up the other side, racing through the rice paddies, up the valley, and then colliding with the first wave just at the foot of the nearer, lower hill. And like a geyser, it fountained up, totally enveloped the lower hill, and washed everybody away. That was in 869, 1,200 years ago, approximately. That story was passed down through between 50 and 55 generations, depending what formula you use. Mr. Sato learned about it in elementary school. It's part of the local curriculum of the school. And on the lower, nearer hill, there was a tsunami stone that essentially said, if the earth shakes, don't come here, go there. So on March 11th at 2.46 p.m., when all of Japan shook and Japan moved about five meters closer to Canada than it was before, and northern Japan is now a meter and a half lower than it was before, so violent was the shaking and dramatic that the people on Miyatojima knew what to do because they knew from elementary school where they should go. And 100% of the village went to the further, higher hill. And for the first time in over a millennium, the same phenomenon was witnessed. They saw the wave come from the Pacific, the rising ocean, and as it funneled into the harbor, it rose and became violent, destroying their houses and now their metal boats below. And then they saw the second wave racing up the rice paddies, colliding with the first wave at the bottom of the lower, nearer hill, coming up like a fountain, washing away the tsunami stone on the top of the first hill, and their lives were saved. That story speaks to me of many things, and one of them is the importance of education and how education needs to be localized. And I talk to academics often about the importance of localizing our education as well as giving a global worldview, but it also challenges me as a follower of Christ, as someone wanting to extend compassion to the neglected poor, to be good news. Am I going for the convenient, nearer hill? Or am I prepared to go the distance and go to the further, the higher hill, and have a 360 view, and to save the lives 
of others. So that brings me to another mountain, a mountain that Jesus went up with three of his best friends. Let me uh, read these words to you. About eight days after Jesus said this, and uh, eight days after he'd been telling Peter about the cost of following him, it says he took three of his friends, Peter, John, and James, with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. That's a good thing, to go away on retreat and have times of prayer. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. It's another good thing when prayer actually changes us as we're in the process. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. That would have been pretty spectacular to see. Two men, Moses and Elijah, who of course were long dead, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. I sure wish I knew what glorious splendor looked like. I, I wish the, it would be a bit more descriptive, but you could just imagine it must have been fantastic. Well, it was glorious. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And Peter and his companions were very sleepy. I'm really glad that's in there, that even people in the inner circle of Jesus, during a time of spectacular spiritual happenings, were so dozy, they didn't know what was going on. I kind of feel, I, I, I'm around other spiritual, I've been like that with Phil before, thinking, man, he's picking up on stuff. I don't feel a thing. And, and I'm kind of glad that Peter was the same way. He was a bit numb at times. But when they became fully awake, and we sung about becoming awake this morning, the importance of waking up, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, this is really cool. Let's stay here. It's good for us to be here. So let's put up three shelters and contain, memorialize what we have happened. And how many times is that my tendency to think because God's done it one way once, he'll do it that way every time afterwards and try to restrict God to to this place and, and this way forever. Put up one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Then I love what it says here. He did not know what he was saying. For you see, Peter and his mates were still trying to clue in what is this kingdom business about? It was mysterious. It wasn't, it wasn't clear. It was often ambiguous. And they were trying to figure out, and if I was Peter, what would have been on my mind and motiv- motivated me to say what he said would be, ah, this is it. This is what the kingdom is like. It's to be in a place of spiritual fireworks, of the spectacular, of the intense, of the special, of the rare. And what we notice, if we read on through, in, particularly into the next chapter, that Jesus didn't answer him with words. Jesus answered him with actions. And his actions were to lead them back down off the mountain from a place of significance from a place of importance, yes, from a place of renewal and retreat, yes, but back down into the valley to be engaged in hand-to-hand combat with powers of darkness that capture, corrupt, and undermine and violate people. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom is about. It's to serve. It's to be me in the valley where people are suffering. But this view has a cost because basically this is the view of love. Jesus calls us to the way of love. And there's a cost of that. Has anybody ever heard of the management consultant called Willard Waller? 
Anybody heard of Willa Waller? He wrote an essay in the 80s called The Principle of Least Interest, and basically talking about negotiating. And he said, in a relationship, the person with the least interest in the outcome has the greatest leverage. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, If you're negotiating for something, uh, whether you're the buyer, the seller, whoever wants it most is the most vulnerable. They're the greatest at risk. Think of a romantic relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband and wife. If one seems to love one more than the other, loves them, who's got the power? The power, the person who cares the least. But this is not the Jesus way. And I remember being in Bosnia a few years ago during the wars. We were trying to keep a school open. And uh, when we were, uh, Phil and I were both with British Youth of Christ at that time, and uh, we had teams going down and working with some Bosnian teachers. I remember talking to some Canadian UN peacekeepers in Medjugorje, just outside of Mostar, and I asked for advice. How do you cope? Ethnic cleansing, genocide, mass rape, things that just cause your heart to break and the tears to be unstoppable. And they said, the only way you can really cope and do your job is by turning the volume down on your emotions. And I get it. I understand that you have to blend thought with heart. But Jesus calls us to care. And that's where the cost lies for us in having the view of things that Jesus has. But it's not a debilitating love. It's a love that motivates us into action. And he calls us to simply walk with people. One of my favorite theologians is a Japanese theologian who wrote a book called Three Mile Per Hour God. Fifteen years ago, I was on a 3,000-kilometer bike trip up Japan uh, following the cherry blossom. My publisher in England had given me money to... to, uh, ride my bike up during cherry blossom season. They, they, they had a bike built for me. I still have it. They paid all my expenses. It was heavenly for six weeks just to, just to be in Japan during party season. But two-thirds of the way through, I didn't have my dog with me at that time. Um, it was 15 years ago. But I developed acute tendinitis in both knees. And this one day, I thought I'd have to stop at about a 2,000-kilometer mark, and I was in a long tunnel, a two-kilometer tunnel in Yamagataken. It had an elbow in the middle. It was uphill, and there was a, a, a headwind coming down the mountain through the tunnel. And as I entered in the tunnel, I was grateful for the tunnel insofar as I loved screaming in tunnels. Screaming is really good. And tunnels are a particularly good place to scream. And it was just like, uh, if you've had acute tendonitis in your knees, it's like uh, uh, there was a knife, a hot knife, prying the kneecap off. It was, it was the worst pain I've ever had. And I, I, I was just screaming, why is this? How? I was feeling sorry for myself, and I won't share with you the words I was shouting, but it felt really good to be making those words really loud. And then just as I was in the elbow of the tunnel, and the lorry, the truck, as they came in the tunnel at the bottom end or the top end, the roar was just deafening, and it was a very slimy old tunnel, so I was always frightened for my life, and I was was right in the middle, I remembered Kosuke Koyama's book, Three Mile Per Hour God, and I felt God speak to me in a gentle whisper that, he said, even a bicycle is too fast, 
I want to slow you down even more. And then that song came back to me, which is one of my father's favorite songs in the garden, I believe it's called, called, And He Walks With Me. And He Talks With Me. And He Tells Me I Am His Own. And whereas I entered the tunnel screaming, I left it singing and found that places of darkness are also a great place to sing and to experience God's presence. When our first son died, which Phil and Michelle were part of our lives at that time, and he's buried in North Yorkshire, but he was born in Starbridge. I remember my pastor, Pastor Baker from, uh, from Briarly Hill Pentecostal Church came, and uh, he sat with us in the hospital as we were holding dead Luke in our hand, arms. And he said, you know, sometimes it's as if we're on the dark side of God. I said, what heresy is that? A dark side of God? He says, yes, David talked about living in the shadow of his wing. And it was at that point the concept of mystery came into my spiritual lexicon. Realized there is a mysterious side of God. I don't always understand it, but yet the promise is he's with us in it. And God often calls us to come down and live in that valley and walk with people. Um, many stories I could share with Bosnia, but I want to share with you a story about Obachan. Because my point is this. Not only to say to us all, are you going for the higher, further hill? But also to say to all of us, we all have our own vantage points from which we can serve God. I cannot be you and you cannot be me. But I have opportunities that you have and you have opportunities that I can't, don't have. And my wife had a great opportunity seven years ago when we moved into a new community in um, Japan on a hillside, we built a solar-powered log house, and my wife operates weddings from there, and she was born and raised in Japan and speaks Japanese fluently despite being blonde and blue-eyed. Um, and this lady was the first lady to live on this hill. She's now uh, in her 90s. She's grumpy. No one liked her, and she didn't like anybody. No one could befriend her, but my wife decided she would go for the higher hill, the further hill. And she soon discovered that, and it's partly cultural, that no one had ever celebrated her birthday. So seven years ago, my wife decided to throw a birthday party for Obachan. Obachan means grandma in Japanese. And Obachan was shocked. No one's ever celebrated her life before. So she went out and got her hair done, and my wife went and picked her up, and her little, my wife has a little toy sports car, uh, it's, a 800, it's like a, a toy Ferrari. It's only 800cc. Uh, and so she went and picked up Granny in this little toy car, uh, toy sports car, and they went off, brought him back to our house and had a party. My son, who's a filmmaker, and forgive me for talking about my son for a moment, I am exceedingly proud of him, so I will restrain myself, partly because I have to be walking out of here in about nine or ten minutes uh, to go to the south. But uh, my son is a filmmaker, making quite a name for himself, and and uh, he did a little short film of her that went viral and eventually was nominated at Cannes Film Festival for Best Short Film Asia, and he won. Well, thank you very much. So I, I tell you that to say that 
It's been shown on television in Japan. And one of her strained relationships was, was with her grandson. And her grandson just despised his grandmother, just assumed things from her, took her advantage, and she had never been in his bedroom on the second floor of their house. And she phones up my wife last year and says, you'll never guess what just happened, all in Japanese, of course. She said, I was downstairs. My grandson with his buddies were upstairs in their room, and they call me into the room. And they said, Obachan, you're on TV. And she went in, and she became an instant celebrity to her grandson and her friends, and her relationship with her grandson has now been transformed. He's proud to walk down the street with her. They talk about Christ. They talk about Christian things. No, I cannot say that she's accepted Jesus into her heart. But yes, I can say the kingdom of God is coming and bringing peace to ones where there was strain and bringing joy to ones where there was nothing but hardship. Only my wife could have done that. I live on the same hill. I could not have done that. Many years ago in 1979, when I was working for Hope International as a volunteer in the refugee camps on the northern side of the border in a place called Surin, three camps. One was the Cambodian camp, which was the bleakest, grimmest, darkest of them all, standing at the edge of the border looking over in 1979, wondering, when could we bring hope to Cambodia? And... It took a long time. A friend of mine called Clifford Dick eventually got there in the 90s just after the peace accord. And I show you these numbers to say, uh, and now Cambodia is part of my life, in this province of Persat where we're working, we've seen poverty levels drop from uh, 320,000 people living under the poverty line out of 400,000 to 2013, only 122,000 under the poverty line. Uh, with a population growth that's reflecting migration back and also uh, improved child mortality rates. I was pondering this graph and this numbers that have been given me by the Ministry of Agriculture in Cambodia on a plane back to Japan with some supporters from Japan of the work there with Hope. And my, my friends were in first class at the front, and I was back in the, in the peanut section at the back, which I was quite glad to be, because I had an, 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 an epiphany of sorts. And I just felt really grateful that I could be part of the community of people, Canadians, Khmers, Japanese, and others, who helped make this happen and fueled this change. And I thought, I'm turning 60, and I was beginning to think about winding down, 65, 67, whatever the age is supposed to be. And as I thought, I can't do that. I want to do more. I'm, I have relationships, friendships, people who are entrusting me to work with them to do more. So I decided, I came home and I, I uh, decided to tell my wife and family that, that, uh, I want to do more rather than less. I wasn't going to retire. I, I wanted to go to the higher, further hill. And one of the places that I ended up within weeks after that was in the Philippines after the high-end earthquake. Because from my vantage point, 
Being in Japan, I knew that through hope I could access some Japanese government money. And um, so I went, and we were able to, to get that. But let me just uh, go right to the v- very end and show you a picture of him. Because as I went to my family, and he, this young man is my grandson. He's half Filipino and half, well, if I have to speak in technical terms, British. Because his father was born in Britain. He's not allowed to be a Canadian. Um, so I'm sitting now. I've talked to my wife. I've talked to my film director's son and his girlfriend. Three months later, I'm now talking to Ryan and Maria, the parents of Eli, at a restaurant in Tokyo saying, just so you know, no big deal, but I had an epiphany of sorts. I want to do more rather than less. So don't count on me winding things down. I'm going to ramp things up. And then we start talking. They're wondering the kind of things we do. We, we, I share the numbers from Cambodia, talk about Ethiopia and other places as well, as well as visions for Japan. And then I said to them, and became a little bit emotional, and I said, you know, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for him. And Eli was sitting beside me playing with toys, not quite three years old at the time. And at that point, he dropped his toys And he came to me and put his arms around my neck and said, thank you, Grandpa. And for me, at least, it was that existential, subjective moment that sealed the epiphany. That he knew that I wanted him to be able to say 50 years from now, it's that way because my grandpa was involved. We have our vantage points. We have our children, our grandchildren. But it's not just our grandchildren who we're seeking the applause from. But we want our Father in heaven to say, well done, faithful servant. So which hill are you going for? The nearer convenient hill? If you do, God promises to be with us. He was with the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. He walks with us. Because love is what moves at the speed, or love moves at the speed that we move, and that's usually a walking speed. But also, he longs for us to go with him to the higher place where we have the 360 view, and we can see what difference we can make. Let's pray. So, Father God, thank you that we are your children. We are no longer the slaves of fear. But with joy and optimism, we follow you. And we ask you to make clear to us which is that hill you want us to go. Where we can have that wider view, that sphere of influence. Give us your vision of what we can be and what we can do for you. Amen.